Hello. Um, where were we? Oh, yeah. We were in uh, New Zealand being sung these lullabies by these Maoris. This beautiful um, strumming guitars. It's amazing, their voices. Guys that can be so strong and powerful and yet have these amazing voices. And the women. It's just amazing. Okay, we'll be rolling and picking and sailing, maybe. Back at the um, Kiwi farm, one night, one of the other pickers, Dan, invited us to see him play in a band. Dan was real placid and easygoing, and so we were real shocked when we arrived at a Nazi skinhead gig in someone's backyard. Dan was on bass while the singer shouted and saliviated. If that's the word. Salviating. The fans by the hundreds. Sieg Heil. And beating the shit out of each other. Yeah, Sieg Heiling and beating the shit out of each other. All this hate and noise. When the real warriors could sing so sweet. Yeah, that was absolutely bizarre. Like, I think being insular in your, I guess being on a little island like that, if you haven't travelled, you're going to be very insular um, in terms of, well, you're not all. <laughs> Tiptoeing around the way not to offend anyone. But yeah, like we travel so much and they've got this Zeke Heil shit. What the fuck was that about? Ah, oh, man. Just, um, Put them in the umu and bugs their fuckers. Actually, umu is um, an underground oven, but that's the Tongan name for it. Uh, hangi is the name in Maori. Yeah, stick them in the hangi. Get a bit of a uh, long pick. <laughs> it was cold and wet and the campsite kitchen shut pretty early, leaving Tom Grant and myself without a place to hang out. Actually, I called... Oh, I started calling him Tom, it's John. What the fuck? Every time I've said Tom in the recent past, and even in the back end of the other one, it was John. So... Um, it was cold and wet, and the camp kitchen shut pretty early, leaving John, Grant, and myself without a place to hang out. We crouched outside our tents, not ready to call it a night. Grant's tent still had a spew stain where he decided to drink beer one night instead of smoking his cones. And he'd thrown up like a teenager in the park. John had this idea whereby if we bought a slab of beer, we could rock up at little Phil's caravan and offer him one. Phil was young and pretty naive, a mummy's boy who wore wife fronts and never took off his... White Meat Factory Wellingtons. Well, I don't know if he wore white fronts, but he always wore these, like, Meat Factory white gumboots. And, um, yeah, even at night. It's weird. When we stepped inside Phil's parents' caravan, it was warm and cosy. We must have been very transparent in our intentions. But Phil seemed to be glad of our company. 
We twisted off some tops and Grant got stuck into Phil. You rooted any birds in here yet, Phil? Could have. Blokes? That's disgusting. You're a shocker, Grant. Fuck these accents. Phil tried desperately to get himself out of the spotlight, but Grant held him there. You fucking doing all right here, Phil, aren't you? Kitchen, bathroom, bunk, razmags. Yeah, I suppose I am. You know, you could probably fit a sheep in that bunk with you. What? Well, you've got to get lonely in here sometimes. Yeah, because Phil, like, literally his parents had driven this caravan out here, plonked it on this campsite and said, go and pick some kiwi fruits and um, we'll come and get you at the end of the season. So he hadn't, he was very green on appearance, a very green kind of guy. Uh, so, do you guys know any mean dice games, Phil asked, trying to, again, free himself of Grant's attention. Yahtzee! John offered. Okay, forget the dice. Does anyone want to have some smoke? Grant was looking on. Yeah, right. Well, you're going to get some smoke. Phil opened his wardrobe inside a solid stereo system. Hidden from view, he pulled the front of one of the speakers and pulled out a bread bag bulging with marijuana buds. I grow my own out in the bush. He told us there were territories guarded by dogs and guns, booby traps. He said he even guarded his own. But he started drifting off and getting all Rambo on us, so Grant told him to get rolling. Phil didn't smoke anymore, only grew, which was sensible for someone who had such strong gear and so much of it. He was mad, like little assuming kid in white gumboots, and he was like a marijuana grower. Maybe it was there, laid half-conscious, along the caravan settee, that I decided I would head up to Auckland and try to get a ride nearer to the equator. I left the boys kicking their heels on a rainy day and cycled to Hamilton, where I sold my bike to the owner of the Flying Hedgehog and spent the next night on the sofa with other travellers watching a film called Cool Runnings about a Jamaican bobsleigh team. Everyone knows that movie, right? John Candy. Sick movie. There's something else funny too that night. We were watching uh, Speed with Keanu Reeves in and Sandra Bullock. And um, there's a scene where they're driving this bus and they hit a pram. And everyone expects a kid to get hurt, but all these cans of food and stuff come out of this pram. And at that exact moment, a guy walked in and goes... Hey, that's my auntie. And uh, yeah, apparently it was this guy's auntie who was on pushing the pram across the road. Random. Um, so we're watching Jamaican bobsleigh team. Feel the rhythm, feel the ride. <laughs> Bloody, it's such a good feel-good movie, as anyone who's watched it would know. Uh, which made for a really good night's sleep. Trucks don't normally stop for hitches, probably insurance or company policy here in New Zealand. So 
When this truck appeared over the horizon, I looked at the ground to save a little pride. But it pulled up in front of me. Dust, gravel, and the door swung open. The truck was painted up in bright Jamaican colours. Its name, Cool Runnings. The young Maori guy who was driving smiled and told me to get in. <laughs> if that wasn't a sign, what was, eh? Um, by the time I reached Auckland, the birds in the city were squabbling over their roosts. It wasn't a bad idea, bedtime and sleep, but I had to get straight onto it. Do the stuff now instead of fretting about it in my bunk, thinking of the day ahead. By the time I'd found West Haven Marina, it was light. I went in search of notice boards among an endless sea of masts. I walked into one of the marina bars for a beer and tried to get an in with a yachty, but the place was empty, except for a couple of blokes who were here for the cheap grog. The notice board outside was well overlapped with notices. A Danish man who had his blue water certificate, loved washing up, was friendly and had a great sense of humour. A Dutch girl who was gorgeous and experienced. I was disheartened by the competition, but I kept on in, into the dark. <laughs> so a blue water certificate is, I guess, sailing out in deep water. That's what they call blue water. Like when we went round the Kimberleys, we weren't really blue watering. We were where the deeper blue is. We were more turquoise watering. <laughs> Apart from probably Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, which is pretty out there. I was disheartened by the competition, but I kept on into the dark. I walked the full length of the jetty until I ran out of notice boards. It was hard to go cold calling yachts, for most of the jetties had security gates with combination locks. I was about to give it in for the night, but thought I would go and have a chat to Alan, a guy who had been advertising for a month, if only to get some information from the grapevine. I felt sure he would have been inundated with crew by now because he'd been advertising for a month and his yacht was prima. It's like a catch, this big steel hulled yacht, probably worth over a mil. The jetty gate was open, so I wandered along, puzzling over the names and f until I found his boat. 30 minutes later, I walked back toward the city, fueled with excitement. Come back in two weeks, Rich. You've got a ride to Polynesia. Far out. The, ne the next day, I had to get a visa for Australia. I mean, if I wanted to get back there. When I was out of cash. And it was a great place to earn money. The big stepping stone to Asia. It's funny on the way to New Zealand, because... I had a visa for like six months or something, not a work visa. And um, I was about to get, I was trying to get on the plane and the immigration lady said, oh, you can't come because you've got no onward ticket. I was like, oh shit, didn't even think about that. So, um, she, but she whispered that if I got a ticket to Fiji as an onward, and then 
they'd, Fiji didn't care that I didn't have an onward ticket from there at that point. And just get a refund on your ticket when you get to um, New Zealand so you'd only lose a few 10 bucks or 20 bucks or something. <laughs> Worked a treat. I looked at the map of Auckland and located the immigration. But when I went the wrong way and walked two miles along a never-ending road, I realized my error. I asked a bus driver how I could get back to immigration. But he said, it's right behind you. I'd gone the wrong way looking for a place that had just relocated to the place I went. <laughs> that, that was it, like... You only really needed a compass, I reckon, for the cities. Because when you're out and about, you can see where the sun is. But, <laughs> but yeah, my sense of direction is shocking. And um, they'd moved the immigration to the wrong place I was going, so I was pretty stoked there. Things seemed to be going my way. At the immigration office, I was sweating and tripping over my words. I gave the immigration officer my forms. She read them and gave me back with a blank piece of paper. I should say here that I'm getting my Australian, trying to get an Aussie visa. Now, tell me why I should give you a visa. Here's a piece of paper. Even under this lady's scrutiny, with a pen slipping in my clammy hand, I managed to compile a masterpiece of bullshit. It was something like... I want to travel extensively in the outback away from big cities and I am a paleontologist or something. <laughs> I made something up and uh, I got the visa. On the outskirts of Auckland, a blow-dry blonde fisherman called Brett pulled up and clicked the boot of his car without saying anything to me. I got in and he drove off. He was on the phone. Yeah, mate, I stuffed up. Yeah, Crash Sally's MR2, yeah, hit, what, yeah, hit a tree, nah, nah, happy nah, nah, she kicked me out, yeah, I'm on my way home, got it, man, yeah, she was the best. <laughs> Brett was going to Mount Manganui, which was pretty handy, just 15k's from Tapuki where I'd been working. It seemed Brett had met this fantastic girl, was in love. No bones, the guy was a poser, a lad. She was gorgeous. Everything was going well until the tree showed up. It was only a little tree, he told me, but she threw him out. She hadn't stopped crying all night as she kept looking back at her MR2 that was destroyed. I told him anyone who cried all night over a car wasn't worth the trouble anyway. But I hadn't seen her ass, he said. <laughs> That's terrible. Um, the conversation ran all the way back to Mount Manganui. He took a couple of his best fillets to the fish shop and they cooked them up for us. His flatmate showed up and we sat around drinking beer, looking out at the ocean at the front of his place. By 11am I was back under the pagodas with John. 48 hours had passed and I was sorted. I had a visa for Australia, I'd sold my bike... I'd got a lift to Polynesia, like northern Polynesia, Tonga, and um, I was back at camp. It's crazy. No one could believe me. Like, 
I just say, uh, one day I'm going to do this. And like two days later, I'd actually planned it all out and it was happening. That just goes to show everybody, if you're um, dilly-dallying on an, on an idea, maybe you just need to give it full focus. And uh, with no other distractions or choices, you could make something amazing happen. Like just dedicate yourself. Say, right, I'm going to dedicate a week to planning a fucking epic trip somewhere and see what happens. That goes to you, Dickie. Dickie is announced, Dickie Hanlon has announced that he's going to go to Cambodia. And um, I'm his conscience, giving him a kick up the bum to get him to go there. So, Dickie, I hope you bought the book. Step one, buy a guidebook and work out how to get there. When we got back to the campsite where we are picking kiwi fruits, um, Grant was hobbling along the road on crutches with his wife, Marianne, helping him out. He'd nearly got killed. One of the tractor drivers had driven down the main highway at night without lights. A car swerved to avoid it and hit the car Grant was travelling in. The driver in Grant's car was killed and Grant was sat directly behind him. His legs got crushed. He broke a couple of ribs and his head was cut up when he smashed through the side window. Grant was going home. We sat him down in the kitchen and fussed over him. What's wrong with you dicks? Grant asked as John poured his tea and I made him a sandwich. <laughs> hey, he was so lucky he didn't die. Which just goes to show as well, like, um, traveling can be scary and doing new things can be scary, but it's, it's just the same risk as just being in the same place. Tapuki was nothing without these people, a community brought together by circumstance. When I try and think back to write, I miss characters like Grant. He was from the Salts. I took my picking basket off and slung it into the back of the tractor. The boss handed me my wages. I had enough money to get to Tonga. I hadn't thought too much about getting back. I'd done the J-trick and uh, run my finances low. But true fours, I just wanted to get out of the cold. And uh, an opportunity had presented itself. Or I'd gone and found it with Alan and his yacht, which I'm going to change the name of to something. I don't know. <laughs> I think of something. Can someone think of a name for this yacht? Okay, I was just looking at this um, story and I was wondering if I could keep up making a false name for the entire story for this yacht. Because I could have made a false name up for the main guy, the skipper. And I was wondering if, like, any parts of this, if he read it, he'd be pissed off. <laughs> and I was wondering if he was still alive. And then uh, I just thought I'd give it a crack and see if I can make up a false name for this yacht. So instead of Mamama, I'm calling it Braveheart. Um... <laughs> So the yacht's called Braveheart, the guy's called Al. Let's see if I can keep this up. 
We popped out of Auckland's light pollution and the grunt of Owl's massive double-decker bus engine died. Rich, wake up, man. You've got to come and see this. Justin was a Californian surfer. He was a really passive guy, tall with a long, broad nose from his Cherokee ancestry. I followed him through the galley slash lounge room and up into the cockpit. The ocean was flat, smooth. The sails drove us forward at a gentle pace. Along either side of Braveheart, dolphins, invisible but for the green glow of phosphorescence that held them in light as they breached the surface. This was the only calm water we would see for five days. We cut through the swell heading north, rotating around night and day, sleep and wake. The bow rose high over the tops of waves and crashed down into the troughs. At first sleep was an escape when the motion that affected everybody would stop. But soon even my dreams rocked. I was home talking to my dad. Hi dad, back to sea, but I'm really, I'm not here. The bow fell down the face of a wave and I stumbled and fell around my dad's front room. Shit, it's rough out here, dad. <laughs> what are you doing, lad? Stay still. Rich, wake up. Rich, it's your shift, buddy. What? Huh? Out on deck, I joined Gordon on the night shift. Gordon, too, was an American from Seattle who had Indian blood, but he looked more Euro European than Justin. He was outspoken and take no shit honest. Amanda was tactful and neutral. Brent was keen to get his skipper's ticket and was constantly challenging Al with questions. So Amanda, I think she was Kiwi, and Brent was Kiwi. Al knew a lot about the ocean. He had motored around it most of his life as a cray fisherman. But sailing, he knew very little. Brent's knowledge unnerved Al and made Brent number one scapegoat. Plus, probably because he was Kiwi as well. He, he didn't have any novelty factor. Um, during the night my eyes glazed over and lost their focus for a brief moment when the rigging came back into focus I realised I was in charge of Alan's million dollar yacht I had snuck in the back door to Alan's dream I tweaked the autopilot to keep the best course as high into the wind as we could yeah because we are pretty much heading almost the winds were coming predominantly from the direction we wanted to go. So we had that 45 degrees where we could sail toward the wind within 45 degrees. So it was just like, it sounds really techy, but we were just pretty much tuning a radio. It's just a big dial and just go, okay, we can go one degree more now. And then when the wind swung a bit, you'd turn the dial. So we we're just trying to so we're doing tacks, like massive zigzags towards Tonga. But we're just trying to minimise the length of the zigzag. If you get my drift. Um, during the night, a small dot showed up on the radar that brought Al out of his bunk. Al was keeping in the aft. He was probably used to the diesel smells. But yeah, the engine was 
uh, an actual double-decker bus engine from London and been put into this yacht, so it was a beast of an engine. Everything about this yacht was way above um, Dave's pay grade, like steel hull, um, massive berm, like beam on it, like really wide, had two masts, it's called a catch, it's twice as big as Dave's boat. Had you know microwave, washer, TV, so <laughs> massive freezers. It's totally decked out. A faint yellow light to the west appeared and disappeared behind the waves as we passed a tiny fiberglass yacht that struggled its way north. Alan's boat was twice his size. It had radar, sonar, two global positioning systems, and the hull was steel. I pitied the guys in the tiny boat out here. They were taking a real flogging. After five days sailing, we came across South Minerva. This horseshoe-shaped atoll, not more than three kilometers in diameter, was stranded in the middle of the South Pacific. At its edge, the ocean floor dropped thousands of feet, and the heavy ocean pounded and washed across the reef on high tide. However, once inside the horseshoe through a narrow channel, the water was flat and calm. At the entrance, the carcass of a yacht covered in barnacles and algae to and fro eerily. The skipper, travelling with his wife and kids, had been waiting on the outside of the reef for enough daylight to navigate his way in through the narrow entrance. During the night, a big wave picked them up and threw them onto the reef. There were wrecks inside the reef too. One was an old fishing boat. The skipper just made it into the reef before the sea claimed her. She sank down and settled on the ocean floor 50 feet below. The crew, I think they were Tongan, they managed to survive for over a month living on a tiny patch of sand that was just above the tide line. They built up a wall of coral to give them some shelter from the wind that howled across the ocean and lived on food from the reefs. On high tide, they would be knee-deep in water without a dry spot to be found. Imagine that, it's like on high tide and you, you sail up to these guys and they're just standing there in the middle of the ocean because you wouldn't be able to see the reef. <laughs> like some biblical uh, thing. I was sailing through the South Pacific and I met these Tongans who were walking home. But they got saved and... Um, they made a dive wreck by leaving their boat there. Fantastic. There was tension on the boat, and not just in the sheets and ropes and sails. It was all generated by Al. Like Ant had said, all skippers are bastards. But Al was next level. I mean, this is where I had a huge appreciation for, um, for Dave. Al lowered the dinghy into the water and let out his frustrations on the accelerator, almost flipping the dinghy and us. After this, he was happy again. Minerva Reef was alive with corals, tropical fish, crays, sharks, turtles, and with so few visitors, had managed to stay that way. It's just amazing because these atolls, they just, they just grow from the seabed and just like donut the way up to the surface, or more like horseshoe with this one, but just bubble out, form a crust, then that forms a crust, forms a crust. 
until it's made this towering atoll that's come up from the seabed. Um, Justin was first in. He swam like a fish. He was a marine biologist and had been brought up with the ocean. He was actually on the front page of Surfer Mag in uh, California when he was a kid, like this young kid uh, on his knees paddling a mal because that's an old way of paddling. You, you're on your knees and just paddle out. And there's this cool pic of him, black and white, paddling out over the break in California. <laughs> He swam 40-plus feet down into the hull of the wrecked fishing boat, looking for air pockets where he could breathe again. He swam around coral bombies and through caves. When he eventually surfaced, he held crayfish in his each hand. He was amazing, this guy. <laughs> He'd made his own surfboard. He rode around New Zealand, living on the beaches and surfing, and just living off the land as much as he could. Like just eating all the uh, pippies and shellfish, fishing. Justin had a philosophy with food where he'd eat anything that had, had had a free life before it died. He had worked with battery animals. He knew of the cruelty and what shit was fed to them. Al, on the other hand, was a thoughtless taker. He ripped up living cowrie shells from the seabed and snapped off Cray's feelers trying to catch them. He didn't have the grace or skill of Justin. He bulldozed his way around and got cut up by the corals. In the end, he pulled up a female cray covered in eggs and took it home for the pan. There's little orange uh, eggs on these crays. And he was a cray fisherman, sir. It's like a lot of these uh, fishing, um, you know, the catch and all that. I really respect the bravery getting out there, but it just looks like rape and plunder on a mass scale when you see that. And that's what the crays are. They're like, they call um, crays like the red gold of the ocean or something like that in uh, New Zealand. <laughs> take it, take it, mass, mass. Braveheart was kitted out with everything from microwave to a washing machine, comfortable sofas. On the wall, a very 70s picture of Al stood next to a great white shark that he caught. And this shark was huge, like, it's bloody, like, I don't know, it's like six metres long. It was twisted and sad-looking, strung up in chains. And he wore one of its teeth around his neck as a trophy. This great white tooth wide, you know, like 30 mil wide or something. And um, it had the cap like made in gold, like a tooth cap, and then it attached to a chain. And he wore it everywhere. Like, After dinner, laughing at Al's jokes and stories, we twisted the tops off some beers and slammed in a video. We were lifted from our seats and taken to Scotland where William Wallace fought against the English in the film Braveheart. That's where I've got the pseudonym from. The film sucked me in and took all my attention. I was in Scotland, running for my life, hating my own countrymen. When I went outside for a pee, I took a look around, up at the sky and across the ocean. 
The moon shifted behind wisps of cloud and illuminated big scary breakers that boomed against the reef. The wind groaned in the rigging. Holy shit. We're in the middle of the Pacific. It was scary because like, you didn't get the main swell, but you still got the winds. You got the trade winds and that kicked up chop as well. So <laughs> you felt like you were in the eye of the storm, literally. Shark Alley. Al winched me up the 70-foot mast with the halyard rope. Up here, I could see across South Minerva, see the Pacific, and its never-ending horizon. Justin was at the edge of the reef on his bright yellow surfboard, checking out the unrideable waves that surely would have spread him across the reef. So there's Just out on <laughs> like a little dot paddling around. Like, there's tiger sharks and all sorts out there. I could see Shark Alley where Al and Gordon had snorkeled along the day before. They came back with stories of being surrounded by sharks. These sharks, although potentially dangerous, weren't notorious man-eaters like the bronze whaler, tiger shark or the great white. These were reef sharks. The bigger, more dangerous sharks normally stayed on the outside of the reef. So these reefies, there was two different types, white and black tips. And um, the black ones, they were like more pear-shaped. And because they weren't used to man, they were like, put it in your face. We took the dinghy over to Shark Alley. I swam down with the anchor and secured it on the seabed. The water was choppy and we drifted with the current away from the safety of the rubber duck. There must have been 20 sharks cruising the alley. When Amanda swam down to check out a palm coral, she didn't see the shark beneath her. I thought she might swim straight into it. The black-tipped reef shark saw Amanda's approach as a threat to its territory. It came towards us, circling both Amanda and myself, sizing us up through its cold, emotionless eyes. When Justin saw that we were in trouble, he swam over and put himself between the shark and us, outstretching his arms to make himself appear big. Justin was used to sharks. In California, big blue sharks over 12 foot long would often come to have a nosy at him when he dived. One time he was tending the dive boat for his friends. He got bored, so he decided to go for a snorkel. He jumped in the ocean, and through the mask he could see his friends exploring a reef 50 or so feet beneath him. They were engrossed with their explorations and didn't see Justin as he free-dived toward them. They were too deep, the pressure in his ears too great. He paddled for the surface and sucked in the sweet air. When he looked back down at the depths, a shadow came in at the corner of his vision. He made out the sleek killing machine shape of the great white. He was heading towards where his friends were diving. He swam back to his boat and did the only thing he could. Wait. Eventually, after a long painful time, his friends surfaced totally ignorant to how close they had been to this huge great white. In, the, in my initial story, I said close to death because people don't know that much about great whites. And now, they're, uh, with all the footage they've seen, a lot of great whites don't attack. They just come in for a look, and a lot of attacks are um, by mistake, which is like, oh, sorry, buddy, didn't realize. <laughs> 
as you're watching your other half drop to the bottom of the ocean. Back on Minerva, the shark sniffed our fear, circling us at arm's length, trying to find a way through. Justin guarded us, making sure the shark didn't sneak around the back of him, keeping it face on and playing a game of bluff. Apparently that's a thing too, like, don't turn your back on a shark. <laughs> if you know it's there. I mean, imagine that though, like, oh, that's a great white, I better duck down and stare it out. It was a strange sensation looking at this shark. Small, really, only three or four feet long. Knowing that we should be okay, but then again, we were in its element and it had big, sharp teeth. The black tip gave, gave up and swam slowly away, casting threatening stares as it went. It was like that um, coconut monkey in, <laughs> in Sumatra. Kept looking back. Yeah, I'll be back, you boy. I surfaced and looked around to get my bearings. When I put my head back under the surface, two more sharks were blocking my path to the dinghy. It really was a kiss chase we played with those sharks in the alley. Fascination and fear, curiosity gave us courage. If they were swimming away from us, we would happily follow. The following day, Al, Justin and myself went out again. Amanda didn't want to risk a repeat of the shark episode, so she stayed back. It was an eerie place out here in the middle of the Pacific with all these sharks. As I said, though, because they were on the inner reef, we kind of felt a bit safer. We kind of kidded ourselves that the tiger sharks only stayed on the outer reef. <laughs> yeah, they know, they know they're not allowed in, the, in through the entrance, even though a yacht can fit in here. I was scared, but I went anyway. Alan Justin jumped in without hesitation and swam out. When I rolled over the side with my snorkel, the first thing I saw was two big black tips directly beneath me. I tried to ignore them, tried to hide my fear. I followed two big parrotfish round the back of a coral bommy. I wanted to carry on, but as I swam further and further from the dinghy, another shark appeared. I turned around and swam slowly back nearer to the dinghy and relative safety. More sharks came. I pushed myself out of the water and rolled over into the dinghy. It was cold. With the wind, I lay there, shivering, waiting for the slayer of great whites to return and pay out on me. Yeah, you pussy. What are you doing in there? <laughs> the dinghy moved and a pair of hands appeared on the side of the boat. Justin hauled himself aboard and lay in the bottom of the dinghy. He looked exhausted. Man, a shark just attacked me. A black tip over six foot long had arched its back, folded back its fins in the attack position and come straight at him out of the murk. Justin tried to stay calm. The worst thing he could have done was to turn his back on it. So he floated in the one spot, keeping the shark in view. The shark was almost on him. He had no means of defence against the speeding mouth of razor-sharp teeth, other than a pair of rubber gloves. He braced himself, waiting to feel the teeth slash and break through his flesh, spilling blood into the water, and the other sharks wouldn't be far behind. At the very last second, the shark changed direction, stopped to distance and came back in again. The black tip meant business, and was big enough to carry it out. 
Justin, in his desperation, kicked out towards it and managed to connect. The shark took off, as if to come in again, but thought better of it and left him alone. There's a, sh there's a sketch as well of uh, Justin was a good artist. He was a good all-rounder, this guy. He could fight, too. <laughs> he actually moved to Hawaii and uh, he told me he was having bare-knuckle fights with surfers on the beach. So. <laughs> Bit of a lad. Just do a little uh, biography on Al. Al, as I said, he had the uh, great white tooth around his neck in gold. He had the hairy chest, the suntan. And he was like a small angry pirate, to be fair. He had like mousy hair, sort of half long. Um, and... He <laughs> Yeah, he was just like, he was telling us stories of like, geez, I got pissed and we had a big fight. And yeah, we used to do this, back in big fights and back in the, it's all like aggro. And uh, yeah, he was like a rough, I wouldn't call him a rough diamond, I'd call him just rough. Um, <laughs> but he, um, there was one day when Al was in the aft, he was having a kip. And I'd hooked this massive good eating fish. It's called a wahoo. And wahoo were called up because they put up a really good fight. And everyone's wahooing when they're trying to pull it in. Woo, 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 woo. So we're all wahooing and giggling and screaming, struggling to get this fish. And then um, Al hears the commotion. He springs up on deck. He's adorning a cropped T-shirt, budgie smugglers, a.k.a. speedos or sluggers, and his great white tooth swinging across his hairy chest. Fucking calm down! And he, <laughs> he slipped on his white sailing boots to top off his outfit. So he's got like, they're like Wonder Woman boots, really. They're like the mid-calf um, <laughs> white sailing boots. And then he... Um, he grabbed the rod, brought the fish in, had the flapping fillets on the plate within minutes. Swill the blood off the deck! And then he disappeared back down into the hole. What a prick, someone whispered. Heads nodded. <laughs> yeah, it's like, fucking pussy! What are you fucking running around for? Fucking... Like a musketeer, blade swinging through the air, and this fish is like filleted and done. Because like, he, <laughs> he was his bread and butter. Um, he was also Al. All the yacht was, um, everything was automatic. Like he could pretty much run it on his own. Probably because he knew he didn't have many mates, so he, he needed <laughs> he needed to have that option. Because they're just like a roller blind, like on the front sail, like, I don't know if you've listened to the other stories when I was in the Kimberley where you have to clip the sails back on. But with the fancy ones, they just roll out like a, like a blind, call them self-furling, and you can just pull out the sail to how far you want, and then that's it. And you just, uh, and you just reel it in a bit, it's getting too windy, so he could self-furl the sails. And um, he only had to wind them on. Al was pretty argumentative. Like, 
he had it gave me a massive bollocking because I left the bones. Oh no, I took the bones off some chicken and I hit the roof when I cooked this meal. And then Gordon, like, he used to um, be on nuclear subs. He used to <laughs> be underground on submarines all the time. So I guess he was used to being in a crew, but he's like, don't fucking give him shit about chicken bones, you dickhead. And they were, <laughs> they were about to fight each other. It's like, it was like a mutiny. Like, most people did not like Al. And uh, I just had visions of Al just floating away from uh, Braveheart, face down in the water. <laughs> I didn't mean to do it, said Gordon. It just pushed me too far. And then we just sail off. <laughs> that would have been awkward. But yeah, Al, um, he hated Brent. Because like I said, Brent, he's probably too close to his own kind, being from New Zealand. But because he was studying to be a sailor and all the navigational stuff, he was really on point. And he kept sort of tripping Al up, who was pretty much just using his engine whenever he could and just whacking the sails up when it was easy. Um, unlike Dave, who would, you know, he wasn't a purist. This diesel engine was cranking a lot. Um, but he told Justin and Amanda that if they wanted to stay, and myself, that we, we were welcome to keep going once we got to Tonga. We could go on to Fiji and everything, which seems like a dream, doesn't it? If someone said to you, yeah, do you want to come on a cruise around uh, the Pacific, the South Pacific, around all the beautiful islands? And it's only going to cost you $15 a day or seven quid. <laughs> You've been like, what? But the downside was you have to put up with Al, the crazy pirate guy. Uh, yeah, he loved Justin because Justin was such an ocean man. Like he was, he had salt in his gills the same. And um, he was impressive with his diving and the way he could catch craze and the way he was kind of at one with the ocean. He threatened to kick Brent off the boat, actually, for uh, making a chili con carne that had a slight extra bit of chili in it. <laughs> it was mild as and I was like, boom, spat it out. Fucking do this again, you're off fucking boat. <laughs> he must have been a skipper, because obviously, yeah, he must have been, because he, he obviously owned the cry boat because he was used to being the gaffer, but used to bossing a load of um, fishing labourers around, I guess. And he just probably just assumed the position again with us, like we were his crew and uh, don't fuck, don't fuck with the gaffer. I don't know where he was going to throw Brent, though. Like, <laughs> we're in the middle of the Pacific. It's like, you're off the boat. Now, get off. Yeah, it's funny, it was like food was a trigger for Al. Like, we had that wasabi sauce that I'd queued up for like four hours for. And he'd slice up all this uh, tuna and different fillets and we'd have this amazing food and he just wanted the best. Which was fine by us because then we got to eat well. But he was like one of those high-ranking chefs that are just wankers. Like... He didn't seem to give a shit what course we set on the night shift. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, get on with it and went to bed. Had a couple of beers.
But in the kitchen, he'd be like an overseer. And if we did something wrong, he'd be like, shoot you down. And um, as I said, I was kind of just holding it all in because I knew it was only for another few days. But Gordon was th was totally over it and uh, ready to fight him. The dark shadows on the horizon turned from black to green. A subtle trick of the eyes as we sailed over the last horizon toward Tonga. The islands were notably flat. The copper plantations so perfectly level as if they'd been lopped with a giant pair of shears. As the sun rose, trees became distinguishable from one another. Houses, boats and eventually movement on the shores. I leaned over the bow, craving the details. The incredible smell of earth and vegetation up my nostrils after nothing but salt water out at sea. Al, in his natural stoic state, gripped the helm, making his way toward what he hoped was the port. Nobody motored out to question our arrival, so Al kept going. There was a yacht moored at a small wharf and a conspicuous glow of white skin amongst the dark-skinned locals. A solid man in uniform was stamping passports. They here! The official ordered, gesturing for Al to motor up against the other yacht he was dealing with. Al dropped over a couple of fenders and we moored up alongside. Are you heading now? Al motioned to the wiry grey-haired bloke on the other yacht. Yes, the bloke looked agitated. We're heading to LA in about 20 minutes. He gestured toward what looked like his family, two teenagers and his wife. After the immigration dude had dealt with the guys heading to LA, he clambered aboard. Braveheart. I made it all the way through the story and kept the same boat name. No one will ever know the name of that boat. <laughs> Al took him downstairs. Like all officials, it was best to stay on his good side. The official left with a big smile on his face and his battered old briefcase bulging with fishing lures and hooks. Once we had our passports stamped, the crew of Braveheart were quick to get off. In fact, within an hour, Al and Amanda were the only ones left. Justin was down to his last $300 and a long way from his home in California. Al had been his only way out at this time. He had Justin all lined up to be his second mate aboard Braveheart, keeping him food in exchange for keeping him company and doing a little work. Maybe even hire him a fox if he got lonely, a suggestion that didn't sit too well on Justin's young face. Yeah, Al had mentioned a few times he'd hired a few foxes to accompany him on the boat. Yeah. He was that age too, he was like in his... I don't know how old he was, probably about 50, maybe f mid 40s. We had to climb over this guy's boat who was heading to LA. He was probably a bit pissed that we'd tied up against him, to be honest, because it meant more complications before he could get out. So we had to like ask permission to board so we could walk through his yacht to get to the port. Permission to board? We asked the grey-haired chap in the other yacht. He held the gate to our escape onto land and away from Al, the crazy pirate man. 
Aye, he said. Apart from getting away from Pirate Al, there's also the fact that you've been constantly in motion for so long and you're tweaking muscles on your legs are constantly like uh, relaxing and contracting as you move side to side, front to back. And you just wanted to get away from that ocean rock. But there is actually a funny thing that when you do get on shore, you're still moving around because <laughs> your muscles are subconsciously just automatically tweaking your side to side. So you kind of have a boat rock for a few days or a few hours maybe when you get ashore. As we stepped across the other yacht to get to shore, the grey-eyed guy said, any of you guys need a ride to Los Angeles? I'm leaving within the hour and I need some crew. Justin and Brent didn't even get to touch the quayside. They sailed away and we waved them off. It's crazy, like, it's all a bit too foggy to get my head around at the time. I'd kind of like planned, you know, yeah, we'll all go for a beer. And, and uh, they were gone. Because Justin and me were all set to go on a mission together up the coast, fishing, surfing, kipping under the stars, campfires and coconuts. I'd miss his company, but I was glad to be walking along the jetty and back into my own life. Justin and Brent had another five weeks of heavy sailing in front of them. Samoa, Hawaii, LA. And <laughs> when I got in touch with Justin Lido, he sent me a postcard and he said the guys were, family were fucking nuts and they were fighting all the time and they were stuck in this little bubble of bollocks, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really important, isn't it, that um, when you're going somewhere good, You've got to go with people who are vibing on it because if you're caught up in someone else's storm, you're, you're sort of like stuck in one of those shake-up snow, snow doodads, snow globes. And outside, it's all like really nice and you're in this little shake-up going, what? get me out of here. But it was an endurance and I'm sure they had to meditate to um, get to LA. But hopefully they weren't, he wasn't as uh, angry as Al. Thanks for listening, and um, I'm getting close to the end of my book. So my rest of my stories are all buried in journals and stuff, so um, if you want me to exchange that journal text into some sort of legible book stuff, you'll have to give me some uh, words of encouragement, because I cannot operate on fresh air alone. See you in the next one.